you the next great podcast. iHeartRadio's talent scouts have been on the hunt for the freshest, funniest, and most compelling voices out there. We've sifted through thousands of incredible entries, and now we're giving 10 lucky teens the chance to impress you. To help us crown the next great podcast, listen to these 10 pilots and then vote for your favorite at thenextgreatpodcast.com. Today, for your consideration, we present Ball is Business by Alexis Hunt. This is a really sharp pitch from a sports fan who wants to shine a spotlight on the high school basketball recruiting process. Alexis's experience in both education and journalism put her in a unique position to examine the human toll of the college sports industrial complex. And the timing for this story couldn't be better, as sports leagues, and the NBA in particular, make a big show of performing wokeness, while conveniently overlooking the social injustices that they help perpetuate. So, without further ado, here is Ball is Business. I'm Alexis Hot from Brooklyn, New York, and you're listening to the pilot of Ball is Business as part of the Next Great Podcast competition from iHeartRadio and Tongle. My most grandest game I ever had was playing on my AAU team with my coach, Doc Nacelli. It was so cool. He used to tell me, hey, Corey, you had like this raspy voice. Hey, Corey, just go out there. Don't worry about it. If you miss, it's okay. Don't worry. I just want you to have fun and be happy. I think it was a tournament um, sponsored by Charles Barkley in the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. And I don't know, the, the, the rim just looked like a big, giant bucket me it was like art like all other players on the court is like what do we do with this guy he could just pass the ball off walk away like he's not gonna do nothing then the next thing you turn around he's catching an alley dunk like what the hell i'm telling you it was like it was like the best fantasy or dream you could ever have i didn't even know how many points i had i probably thought i was thinking look honestly speaking just feeling myself on the court. I was like, wow, I probably just gave these guys like 30, 35. And then one of my, the big guys on my team, he always go check the scoreboard and he came running over to me laughing, just dying laughing. And I'm just like, what? He's like, you had 62. No wonder why everybody's looking at me like, yo, you could go to the NBA. And so that was the happiest time playing basketball, you know, like just having that freedom to forget all the bullshit that's going on around it, all the peer pressure, all the expectations, all the people waiting, waiting to feast on you. That's the voice of Corey C.J. Johnson. He played this most grandiose game in 1991, the summer before his junior year of high school. Corey told me the story on a Sunday afternoon in mid-October 2020. Almost 30 years later, he recollects the game as if he's still playing it. It's a performance, really. Adult Corey is reliving all of teenage Corey's crossovers and three-pointers right before my eyes. And when teenage Corey finds out he'd scored 62 points, adult Corey is horizontal on the studio couch, pointing a finger to the sky. And spoiler alert, Corey doesn't make it to the NBA. Corey's story is one of millions. One out of the millions who are told that they are the next LeBron James, but see their careers ending in dizzying disappointment. Who are these kids? And who are these people who handcraft and serve artisanal meals stuffed with promises, perks, and manipulation, 
only to pull up a seat and chow down on your basketball dreams? Well, that's exactly what we are trying to answer. Welcome to Ball is Business. I'm your host, Alexis Hot. I taught middle school reading for seven years in both Newark, New Jersey and Brooklyn. During this time, I coached basketball and served as an athletic director. And I found it really hard to believe that some apparel rep was offering my best players Nikes simply because they really complimented their vibe. I also went to the University of Georgia for undergrad, which, if you don't know, is part of the NCAA's Southeastern Conference, better known as the SEC. In 2018, the SEC's basketball team generated almost $20 million of revenue during March Madness alone. I also knew football and basketball players at UGA. I knew that they only came to the wing restaurant I worked at on Mondays when wings were 10 cents a piece because, well, you know, that $20 million wasn't going into their pockets. I've sat with these observations for a while, and I've collected more stories, read more books, and watched more documentaries along the way. My conclusion? Something's afoot in amateur basketball. If you're new to this concept, I'll define it like this. Amateur basketball is any form of competitive play where players are not being paid. Basically, youth league through the NCAA. And just a note, I'm going to focus on boys basketball in this episode because of America's emphasis on men's sports. Here's some things you need to know. One, basketball is the number one team sport in the United States for kids, with more than 20 million participants ages 6 through 17 playing the game. Two, Many of these kids play on AAU teams, in addition to their school teams. That stands for Amateur Athletic Union. The AAU circuit serves as a smorgasbord for NCAA recruiters and NBA agents, as well as apparel reps from Nike and Adidas, where they keep tabs on young stars starting as early as fifth grade. A lot of these kids and their parents are really convinced they will play in the NBA shortly after graduating high school. Why? Well because people do. Remember this? With the fifth pick in the 1995 NBA draft, the Minnesota Timberwolves select Kevin Garnett from Farragut Academy in Chicago. The high school kid is the number five pick in the NBA draft. And of course, this. With the first pick... In the 2003 NBA Draft, the Cleveland Cavaliers select LeBron James. But only 0.03% of the 20 million participants in youth basketball make it to the NBA. That is about the same odds as pulling four of a kind in the first hand of a poker game. It ain't good. There's so much more to this world than this, including who built it and who owns it. But I'm not going to give it all away up front. And anyways, we need to get back to Corey. I asked him when he first knew he was going to be a basketball player. Here's what he said. I first realized that when I was about seven or eight years old and, you know, we was just running around in our neighborhood playing in the regular playgrounds or whatever. But then at a certain time, I noticed all the guys would just be rushing to the basketball court. And so that's when it first piqued my interest. You know, what's so special about being in there? And I see that these guys are out there and they're sweating and they're playing really hard and this and that. And I'm overhearing conversation about, you know, people talking like, wow, yeah, I think he's good enough to make it to the league. Mm -hmm. National Basketball Association, where they paid him really well. And 
So I'm like, oh, really? And so, like I said, by the time I was becoming a teenager going to high school, everybody started asking me, yo, what school are you going to? Like, yo, you going to play ball at Lincoln? You going to play ball at Grady? So Corey got into basketball because it's what everyone around him in Coney Island was doing. And it's what they expected him to do, too. Coney Island is a neighborhood in South Brooklyn that borders the Atlantic Ocean. Coney is known throughout the city for Nathan's Hot Dogs, the Wonder Wheel, and, well, great basketball. The Jewish, Italian, and Irish immigrants who inhabited Coney Island in the 19th century fled to the suburbs in the 1960s as Black Americans migrated north from the Jim Crow South. In the early 1970s, New York City authorities raised the two- and three-story homes the European immigrants once inhabited and replaced them with 20 blocks of housing projects. The Coney Island house is filled with mostly Black residents who had little access to social services, both because of Coney's remote location and racist city practices. By the mid-1980s, Coney Island was flooded with gang activity, hit hard by the crack epidemic, and largely ignored by the city's politicians. Many neighborhood kids turned to basketball to stay out of trouble. The schools Corey mentioned, Lincoln and Grady, they're Coney Island high schools with legacy basketball teams. Abraham Lincoln is the more famous of the two. It is where Stefan Marbury and Sebastian Telfair, both cousins of Corey's, played high school basketball. It's also the setting of Spike Lee's epic He Got Game. Corey enrolled at Lincoln in 1989, under the impression that basketball would be something he did, but it wouldn't be his entire identity. What was surprising to me is that, aside from all the things I enjoyed doing as just a regular person who's not playing basketball, um, which was writing, reading, I knew that when, that was before I got to Lincoln, I couldn't wait to like get my first gig to, to be on a commercial or TV or something like that, because like that's what I really wanted to do coming out of high school. But by the time I got there, I was already like being thrown into the fire. <laughs> What is this fire that Corey refers to? It is the grueling basketball machine that is Abraham Lincoln. In fact, Corey consistently referred to it as a basketball nightmare. It is daily practices and competitive game schedules. It is catching cramps and falling asleep in class. It is Nike camps all summer long and shooting free throws every night after you finish your homework. But he noticed that there were perks to it too. And of course, there were the things that came from the agents and recruiters who flocked to Lincoln games like it was a pilgrimage to a holy land that would deliver them to a basketball heaven. I mean, there are very basic things that they try to, you know, lure you in with, whether that be uh, watches, leather jackets, sneakers. Um, it could be a car. It could be, you know, getting your mom a home. And listen, there's nothing off limits, whatever it takes to get the player. The hardest thing for Corey was that his coach, Coach Harstein, always made him feel boxed in. Corey saw basketball as an art, a place where he could be his naturally creative self. Harstein emphasized a very traditional style of play. It was safe. It won championships. Corey didn't feel like Hartstein gave him a chance to be seen or even to be himself. But at the same time, his coach had a pretty clear point of view about the role of basketball in his players' lives. The tone that he used to talk to us in was very disturbing because it was like he was talking in a turn in, in, a, in a way that made you feel like, okay, this is definitely what's waiting for you, you know? Like what sort stuff? of things was he like saying was like waiting for you? 
like stuff like you know becoming an alcoholic or hanging out in your hood and not doing nothing with your life and if we don't succeed at basketball there's absolutely nothing else for us to do but to become useless in society is that what you're implying but if all i got is this hope or this you know this dream of making it to the nba it's like i'm in quicksand under these circumstances this limited imagination for competitive athletes especially for black males is common so common it is considered a phenomenon i spoke with dr akuma wadike who taught me the term athletic identity foreclosure the idea is that I define my identity based on how I believe people are seeing me. Most people have multiple identities. So I have my work identity, I have my home identity, and that's how most identities develop. Athletes, especially majority Black male athletes who are invested in high-profile sports, develop identity foreclosure. So the idea that everybody around me only sees me as an athlete so now I have figured out that that's the place where I get the most positive reinforcement. If I'm a student, no one really cares. If I draw, no one cares. But when I'm an athlete, I understand that this is where all the positive enforcement is. Dr. Wadike holds two master's degrees in education and a PhD from UConn. She currently runs a consulting company called Inclusivity Education based in Silver Spring, Maryland. The focus of her research and dissertation was the counter narratives of athletes or the public perception of athletes versus who they are as people. And she taught high school in Atlanta. So she saw this foreclosure process up close. Basically, if everyone around you as a kid tells you you're an athlete, you're going to believe that's all you are. By the end of his sophomore year, Corey was ready to explore the other parts of his personality. So I started doing things like after school programs, they have like a talent show or something like that. It's not, and my coach would be like, what is up with this kid? Like, we're about to have practice and he's over here on the stage, you know, acting or whatever. So he would come in the auditorium and was like, hey, Corey practice time like you know and i'm just like oh, all right yo guys i gotta go i gotta go practice you know and i think to a certain degree there was a, a certain time where i was doing like a little self-destructing in a way because what i was doing i thought by you know not doing well in school and failing off the team um was a better way for me to just tell them i didn't want to play no more Corey if anyone was checking in with how he was doing mentally and no one was really asking you like what's up like no are you going to no these practices they're not like, concerned yeah. they're not concerned with your personal issues or how you may be dealing with the scenario you're being presented with nobody is, is concerned about that they're only concerned with you being eligible to play and making this team win you know I heard one guy said when he realized he wasn't going to make it to the NBA, he thought his life was over. But I get the feeling part of it because, yeah, you invested so much time and energy into it only to be told you don't have a chance. I know some guys that turned into alcoholics, some guys who got on drugs, and that's real. According to Dr. Wadike, Corey's observation is spot on. The moment an athlete realizes he isn't going to spend the rest of his life being an athlete usually triggers something akin to an identity crisis. Everyone's been telling me, 
I'm the next Randy Moss, I'm the next Michael Jordan, and now suddenly I'm not, there's this identity crisis. The first person they focus on is themselves. I've let myself down. I've usually let my family down, especially if you're a black male. Large number of athletes fall into depression. And then there's this other thing that's called like learned helplessness. The idea is one of my athletes gave me a lovely quote that said my entire life had been governed by like bells and whistles. Something happens, I react. Something happens, I react. I haven't developed any autonomy here, so I'm helpless. You're about to toss me out into a world that I've never led by myself. Let me put this into perspective for a second. Most of us have never been competitive athletes so close to the NBA that we've already pressed our suit for the draft. So this idea of athletic identity foreclosure may feel pretty foreign to us. But I would venture to say that we've all experienced disappointment while watching a personal dream implode into a taunting fantasy. Whether it is the disillusion of a relationship, being passed over for a promotion, or the pandemic's deferral of all of our plans. That is what is happening when an athlete's professional dreams die. And that loss can happen in a moment. Corey arrived at one of these defining moments at a basketball camp during the summer of 1991. This is the same summer he played his most grandiose game at Charles Barkley's tournament. The day I realized I need to wake up from this basketball dream was after coming from a camp. You play two games in the morning time, two in the afternoon and two in the evening time. And, you know, you're playing these games, so, you know, you get recognition from college coaches and scouts. They could come see you and this and that. The morning I woke up on that third day, and this is a true story, so try to imagine. You wake up from a nice dream, and you're feeling really good. Like, okay, just get ready for another day, whipping some mess on the basketball court, you know? And when I went to, you know, get up, there was no response. I tried to get up again. No response. Like, literally, my body would not move. I had to lay there for about the next 10 minutes, swirling my ankles, trying to lift up my my leg to bend my knee. And I'm just like, like, after a while, I never told this to anybody before, but the way I had to get out of the bed, I literally had to roll myself over, get out on my knees, and use my arms to help stand up. That's how worn out my body was after two days. I'm sitting there and was stuck to think about what you're doing. What are you doing with this basketball thing? Mm -hmm. How's it working out for you? Like, you know, all these things are running through my mind. Is it worth it? So this ride is going to end abruptly. Don't get caught up in the hype of all of everybody cheering for you. Because it all goes away at some point. I know who the business people are. Those are the guys sitting in the stands with their pads and everything, writing down their notes on the players, you know. And it's just like, wow, what part are you going to play in this in this scheme? We haven't even talked about the impact these grueling schedules have on players' bodies. I spoke to a member of the Lakers athletic training staff who said, you know, it's not an accident that all these injuries are happening to these young players and he said at the time he he used this phrase these kids are ticking time bombs that's the voice of baxter holmes a senior writer for espn baxter spent two years reporting on how the grind of youth basketball leads to injuries in rookie nba seasons during his reporting baxter had a conversation with the late kobe bryant 
Jacoby said that by the time his daughter Gianna was 10, she had the opportunity to play a game every weekend. That was a no for Kobe. And his big thing was just by playing a game over and over and over, there's no real skill development. So he was very keen on not allowing Gianna or any of his other kids to fall into that and kind of putting his foot down, so to speak, as saying like, no, you know, we can play basketball a lot, but we're going to work on the game versus just playing constant games. And, uh, and he felt the whole system was kind of corrupt in that way. Corey was a competitive high school player 30 years ago. I wanted to know how the world then compared to the world now. I spoke with Jermel Thomas and his dad, Kareem Scooter Thomas. Jermel is the highest ranked sixth grader in the country. You heard that right. He's 12. He lives in the South Bronx and plays for the Gauchos and Riverside Church along with his school team. He's something of an internet darling. He has 40,000 followers on Instagram. And Corey knew who he was just from seeing his basketball mixtapes online. I asked Jermel, who goes by Mel, when he knew he loved basketball. First time I knew I loved basketball was uh, I was like six. So my brother touched a basketball and I was in the monkey bars. I was bored because he wasn't playing with me. But I saw him, I saw him and my dad working out. So I'm like, the next day I wanted to do this. And I asked my dad, he said I could. Mel plays basketball all the time, but he's also a strong student. He looks up to his older brother, Reem, a talented high school player in his own right. Mel is dead set on going to the NBA. And his dad, Scooter, is his coach, trainer, and guide. Scooter played competitive high school and AAU basketball in the Bronx in the early 1990s. He had dreams of playing in college and the NBA. Unfortunately, he fell into some trouble late in his high school career. He went to prison when he was 19 for five years. He was home in the Bronx for another five before going away again. He spent a total of 13 years in prison, which made playing college or pro ball an impossibility. And his vision for his kids is very, very clear. They will play college basketball. Or, better yet, go pro. But, uh, <laughs> but what if, like, I'm just saying, I'm not saying this is going to happen, yeah. but what if either Reem or Mel, like, came to you tomorrow and was like, Dad, I'm done playing basketball. I don't want to play anymore. There's a lot of consequences to that. <laughs> what would you say? I just pray that they don't do that, because I'll be, you know... I might go to the Lakers store. <laughs> because, because I play ball. I'm, I'm stop playing now. Because I play ball, right? And I can teach you what I know. And I know basketball, it's like a sanctuary. It's good for a lot of kids. Like, if you see a lot of documentaries too, they say, yo, I, I, we have rats and roaches in my house and my mom's on drugs. So I go to basketball court. That's the only time, you know, I was at peace with myself. And now they're just giving out a lot of money. And why not? I mean... Nobody really don't want to do no manual labor. So now, if you go to college, you could network. You will meet you a future lawyer. Like I mean, because you know you want to you want to marry somebody that you could build your 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 life on, and your kids your kids kids would be straight. You know what I'm saying? So that's why I, that's why I'm so hard on it, and that's why I started their dynasty for them now. So that's why that's why I give them directions. You know what I mean, do this because this was going to work. That's a lot. And that's real. And I don't think I'm the right person to argue with any of that. I will say that what I saw and heard from Scooter was a dad who cares a whole lot about his kids and who wants them to have a beautiful life. And in his experience, basketball is the foundation of that beautiful life. We're going to hear more from Mel and Scooter in future episodes. But I played this tape for Corey, and here's what he had to say. There goes the innocence again. 
Um, I hear a parent who's passionate about, you know, having their kid in something that he think he can excel at, you know, especially if he once did it and it was, you know, short lived because he got into some trouble and you know, went away or whatever, you know, why? Because he's looking at it as, you know, something that could potentially be beneficial to his life. And like he said, the money that they're giving out these days is like, wow, like, why wouldn't I aim for that? So there's a parent's expectation and then there are the politics of reality and the kid gets lost somewhere in the middle. I also played the state for Dr. Wadike. She zoomed out and gave me a sense of what's really at play here. If we're thinking of the athlete as the center of the system, they did not usually decide I want to play football or I want to play basketball. Probably put a ball in my hand before I even knew I was going to have a ball. Then you think of your meso systems. The other black males I may see around me, this is what they seem like they're doing. And then the most important one, honestly, for athletes is the exosystem, which is defined as like the system that doesn't, you're not a part of, you don't actually live in it, but yet it affects who you are. And that's as much as I love it. That's the NBA. That's the NFL. That's when I look at where do I see successful people who may look like me? This is what they're doing. And that was the original narrative being told, like, well, their fathers are pushing them into this. Their fathers are affected by the exosystem. That exosystem is this macro system of, in general, another form of systemic oppression. Do you feel that the NCAA, the agents, the recruiting system takes advantage of the fact that this like ecological system exists? Oh, in thousand percent. But the NCAA in general, I mean, we know that 80 to 85 percent of the coaches are white men get 80 to 85 percent of the high profile sport athletes. So meaning basketball and football are black men. You can't ignore that there's clearly a systemic inequity here. So, yes, I'm going to go into these hoods and these inner cities where these kids feel like they have no other choice. I'm probably going to make sure you get through school. You're possibly get through college. And as long as a couple of them make it, that's that law of exceptionality. That's the Oprah Winfrey's and the Obama's we talk about in the regular world. And then that's the LeBron James's that we'll talk about in sports. There's no way to look at how, who succeeds, who doesn't, who owns versus whose labor and not think that it's not a predatory system. Amateur through pro sports, but it's a continuation of of slavery. So there it is. The through line between amateur basketball and America's history isn't really a through line at all. It just is. America is built on the free labor of black people, and that labor has always been commodified and exploited. How would something as human as sport escape the claws of racism and capitalism? And I'm sure some of you saw us going this way all along. As a white person sitting here talking to you, I'm not stumbling across a profound new discovery. I'm just trying to bring to light a sinister fact that is always bubbling under the surface when we fill out our March Madness brackets every year, or when we say that middle schooler that we saw windmill dunk on Instagram is the next LeBron, or when we normalize unpaid college football and basketball players playing a competitive conference schedule in the middle of a pandemic. And I say we because I include myself in this. I love basketball and I love sports. They're a huge part of my identity and the American identity. I'm not sure there's anything inherently wrong with that. But are we willing to love sports so much that we have no love for the people actually playing them? And we have only scratched the surface of how much these young men are being manipulated. The rest of this series will attempt to uncover who's manipulating them and how they're doing it. Before we go, 
Let's check back with Corey one last time. At that time, as a kid, I knew I was being taken advantage of, and it was nothing I could do about it. And that's the part that pissed me off, because I was like, I'm not mad at the taking the disadvantage part, because mm, that's generally what people who are not good do. But what can I do to fight to protect myself against that? I would argue that he shouldn't have had to protect himself against that. He was a kid. Kids are meant to be protected. I asked Corey if there was anyone in his life growing up that he felt like really understood him. He said his teammate, Daryl Flicking. Like Corey, Daryl had intentions to use basketball as a vehicle. He wanted to become a registered nurse. But like me and Daryl used to have like real talks, you know, like, yo, bro, this is what I want to do. Yeah, this is what I want to do. Yeah, but you know, if we tell everybody, they'll be thinking we crazy. You know, they'd be like, yo, you're throwing away your life. You're throwing away your, your potential and everything. Like, but never even checking with who you are. And how do you see happiness unfolding in your own life? You know, and that's the scary part. And Daryl wasn't good. While at Lincoln, he signed to play D1 at Temple. But he didn't make the minimum SAT score to stay eligible. He then played at a junior college and then Division II at UC Riverside. His goal to become a nurse remained. When he decided to give up ball completely, his support system disintegrated. He lost relationships with friends, family members, and the mother of his child. Mental health issues that plagued him for his whole life took hold. He spent a few years living and preaching on the streets of Los Angeles. He lost his life on January 18th, 1999, in a train accident that many believe to be intentional. The thought of knowing how you see happiness unfolding in your own life really stuck with me. And the thought of having the people you care about ask how you personally see that happiness unfolding for you really floored me. Isn't that what we are all looking for in this life? Corey knew by the time he was 15 that professional basketball was not his happiness. And today, Corey still balls for fun. He considers it a form of therapy. He also writes and is working on a short story about basketball as therapy. He's also a vocal advocate for mental health support for young athletes. Here's the close of our four-hour conversation. Yeah, do you feel like you're at a point now where you're like living the life that you want to be living? Absolutely. And I knew it only came as a result of me like being real with myself. Like, yo, like the basketball thing was cool once upon a time, but carve the life out that you really want for yourself. And literally, as soon as I dropped the player, the person just was like, finally, now let's go do the things we really love to do. season on ball is business but even taking that away the whole point of any of the propositions put in place is how can we maintain our labor but make it look externally like we're prioritizing academics it really shook me you know i i remember sitting in my rental car after that and just trying to process the whole thing and it was terrible it was just terrible there's there's no other word i can think of he gave me his card. He's like, that's your son. I'm like, he said, yo, you getting some talent. He's like, yeah, take my card. Whatever, anything you need in the future to help him out with. Um, so I'm like, I right, bet. What keeps you motivated to, like, get up and practice every day, go to, go to school, keep playing games, even if you're tired? Going to the NBA. 